Today is May the 11th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, www.prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. About 40 miles north of the California-Mexico border lies the shrinking landlocked lake known as the Salton Sea. Though the lake was once the epicenter of a thriving resort community, water contamination and decades of drought have contributed to a collapse of its once vibrant ecosystem and given rise to ghost towns. But amid this environmental disaster, the California Energy Commission estimates that there's enough lithium here to meet all of the United States' projected future demand and 40% of the world's demand. That's big news for the booming electric vehicle industry, as lithium is the common denominator across all types of EV batteries. Traditionally, lithium extraction involves either open pit mining or evaporation ponds, which work by pumping lithium-containing brine to the surface and waiting for the water to dry up. Both of these methods have huge land footprints and are often very water-intensive and can create a lot of contamination and waste. But at the Salton Sea, three companies are developing chemical processes to extract lithium in a much cleaner way, taking advantage of the Salton Sea's rich geothermal resources. Near the lake, there are already 11 operating geothermal power plants, 10 of which are owned by Berkshire Hathaway's Renewable Energy Division, BHE Renewables. Alicia Knapp, president and CEO of BHE Renewables, said, We are already pumping 50,000 gallons of brine per minute across all of our 10 geothermal facilities to the surface, and we're using the steam from that brine to generate clean energy. So we're really halfway there in that we got the lithium right here in our hands. Berkshire Hathaway's Renewables operates 10 geothermal power plants in the Salton Sea, known as Geothermal Resource Area. Two other companies, Energy Source and Control Thermal Resources, or CTR, are also developing joint geothermal lithium facilities at the Salton Sea, and General Motors has already committed to source lithium from control thermal resources. This new industry could be a major economic boon to the region, where the majority Mexican-American community faces high tax rates of unemployment and poverty and suffer health impacts from the toxic dust that blows off the Salton Sea's drying lake bed. Our current resources for lithium or at least most of it, comes from China. And that affects the supply chain. This will make a difference with the Salton Sea.
Talking about lithium batteries, well, what makes a lithium battery so important? Well, it's the lithium that's needed. The first commercially viable lithium metal solid-state battery charges to 80% in just 15 minutes. QuantumScape has announced impressive performance figures for what may be the first commercially viable lithium metal solid-state battery. They claim they can increase the autonomy of an electric car by up to 80% in that it can charge from 0 to 80% in just 15 minutes. By using a solid electrolyte instead of the typical liquid solution, solid-state batteries can store considerably more energy by weight and volume than lithium-ion batteries. But yet, making a battery that is reliable and has a useful life appropriate to any driver's needs, high charge and discharge rates, long service life, and without any temperature or safety concerns, has proven difficult up to now. QuantumScape says it has solved the problem with a new design that uses lithium metal anodes that are not formed during manufacturing, but formed around the current collector when the batteries charge. The energy density is reportedly excellent. In volumetric terms, the new battery can store one kilowatt hour, about four times the current Tesla Model 3 battery stores. By weight, it offers between 380 to 500 watt hour per kilogram as compared to 260 watt hour per kilogram in packages currently used by Tesla. The QuantumScape battery charges at blazing speeds, allowing a 0 to 80% charge in 15 minutes, and it can retain more than 80% of its capacity after 800 cycles, which would represent about 240,000 miles or 386,000 kilometers traveled in an electric car. The Chinese government to dump windows in favor of Linux. It has happened in other regions before, and it's happening again in China. The government has ordered the dumping of windows in favor of Linux, among other things. This time, though, the reasoning is a bit different. According to Bloomberg News, Beijing has ordered government offices and state-backed firms to replace foreign-branded PCs and their associated operating systems with alternatives that can be domestically maintained. As such, China is set to replace almost 50 million PCs in central government agencies alone. It is important to note that this process will obviously not be completed in one fell swoop, but is intended to be carried out in a staggered manner over a period of two years. On the hardware side of things, multiple PC OEMs, including Dell, and HP are bound to be negatively affected. On the other hand, local manufacturer Lenovo, as well as other software and hardware vendors such as Kingsoft Corporation and Inspur Electronic Information Industry Company, saw their share prices rise on mainland China stock exchanges. Similarly, Windows is set to be replaced by Linux. This move has been long in the making as the Chinese government has been encouraging the use of homegrown hardware and software for the better part of the past decade. It has apparently also hired a firm to vet and monitor local suppliers in the development of sensitive components 
ranging from semiconductors to the cloud. It is important to note that hard-to-replace PC components, such as CPUs and GPUs, developed by Western firms are likely exempt from this order. Many Chinese OEMs rely on them in their PC-making process, since these components are not readily manufactured locally. The administration doubles down on affordable broadband with central sign-on. The last couple of years have driven home the necessity of a decent broadband connection to take part in today's work and entertainment worlds. But internet access can be expensive or slow in many places, which is why the FCC and the White House are expanding efforts to lower prices and improve access. The FCC in particular was quick to act, though due to red tape, a little slow in pulling off in the matter of mass subsidy of broadband for people in need. By now, however, it has given up billions of dollars to cover the cost of improving school and home connections that would either be too slow or too expensive. The White House is now touting its participation now with a new ultra-simple sign-up process at, and the following is a URL address, getinternet.gov. That's from the government, getinternet.gov, where you can check if you're eligible to receive a reduced rate or upgraded service. In brief, you qualify to have at least $30 per month on your internet bill covered by the feds if you participate in practically any government assistance program like Medicaid, subsidized lunch programs, or SNAP, or if your income is at or below twice the federal poverty level, and it is estimated that about 48 million households qualify in total, so don't be shy about getting some of that government money. The fund and subsidy itself isn't new, and you may at some point have signed up through the FCC, which administers the Affordable Connectivity Program and others. There's been kind of a procession of easily confused and questionably overlapping assistance programs. But don't think too hard about it. Check if you're eligible and see if your broadband provider is participating and make that request. You could be paying $30 less next month. What have we learned about remote work after two years? After more than two years, the view from home offices might not have changed, but much about the day-to-day of remote work has. When the pandemic began, One of the biggest collective changes was that nearly all but essential workers found their offices and homes became one. After a year, there were the short-term and long-term challenges of working from home. Today, we're facing new ones as companies and their employees struggle with a new norm. Once the nation had the opportunity to get vaxxed and boosted last summer, and many local COVID-related mandates were dropped, it seemed offices would soon team with employees. But after waves of Delta and Omicron variants, plans were pushed back and many workplaces braced themselves for an indefinitely remote future. This uncertainty has led to a haphazard situation for many companies and a confusing one for employees. 
Some employees have taken their first steps back into the office, either part of the time or full time. Others have either moved too far away to go back or have deemed to commute unworthy of their time or money, especially given rising gas prices. The 2022 Microsoft Work Trend Index reported that 50% of mid-level managers said their companies are making plans to return to in-person work five days a week in the year ahead, but 52% of the employees are considering going hybrid or remote. But more solid plans are being enacted this spring. All eyes are on the big four, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Meta, and that's Facebook, as smaller companies look to take cues from their moves. Amazon hasn't made too many announcements about its policies, but has left a return to work for corporate employees up to individual teams. As of April 11th, Apple required that its corporate employees work from the office one day a week. On May 2nd, they are required to then work two days a week. And on May 23rd, that goes up to three days a week. Google's campus has begun to fill up again as of April 4th when it said most employees should be in the office three days a week. Google employees can apply for a remote work extension if they do not want to return to the office quite yet. Meta employees started returning to the office on March the 28th, though they had the opportunity to request an extension to work from home for up to five more months or to be moved to full-time remote work. The more stringent the policy, the more it's been met with resistance from employees. Bloomberg News reported that Apple employees haven't taken the dawn of the return to the office well at all. It quoted one anonymous former employee who left the company partly over the policy. Everything happened with us working from home all day, and now we have to go back to the office, sit in traffic for two hours, and hire people to take care of kids at home? Working from home has so many perks, why would we want to go back? It's a prevalent attitude that's reflected in the Microsoft Work Trend Index. 54% of managers said they feel that leadership at their company is out of touch with employee expectations. People are unwilling to lose hours of their days to the things they find most frustrating about work, such as commuting and the drudgery of office life. One in three employees, 32%, said they would quit their job if they could no longer work remotely after the pandemic. More than half, 56%, said they would quit or look for a new job that offered flexibility when they work. 58% would expect a pay raise to stay, and 48% said they would stay but would be less willing to go the extra mile. While the pandemic has exposed the many challenges of working remotely, it has also made the benefits clear. People are unwilling to lose hours of their day to the things they find most frustrating about work, such as commuting and the drudgery of office life. Employees who want a better work-life balance believe they can find it with flexible hybrid work schedules. While offices are a collective place of work, their experience individually and for some individuals, that experience is not as welcoming as it is for others. Women, 52% said they enjoy working remotely and would like to do so in the long term, compared with 41% of men. 
When schools went remote at the beginning of the pandemic, the majority of childcare fell on women. It caused a drastic drop in the number of women in the workforce that's only now coming back and slowly at that. Remote work or a flexible hybrid schedule relieves many major issues for marginalized groups in the workplace. For now, a hybrid model seems to be most prevalent, though how that looks in practice differs from company to company. While a hybrid workplace can offer the most flexibility, it doesn't come without challenges. At a time of divisions, this split has further widened a crucial gap, that between employees. With hybrid workplaces, work-from-home employees can feel lost in mostly empty offices. In-office employees have found themselves spending time commuting only to sit in the office and spend the day not interacting with anyone there and having a Zoom meeting or two. Meanwhile, those still working remote can feel ignored or when they're logged on to a Zoom meeting and see their colleagues in a conference room having side conversations that they're not a part of. Companies have to set up policies for hybrid workplaces that make for a unified office culture, no matter how far apart employees are from each other in the office. They should make sure that if employees are required to be in the office, it's because it's essential for performing their jobs, and when employees do come in, it should be with coordinated schedules that are built around dedicated tasks. Even those who enjoy working from home might miss the office for other reasons, such as a purely work-focused space, the camaraderie of colleagues, or a slight sense of normalcy after the last two years. There have been some unpleasant new realities faced by those returning to the office. Lots of workplace perks have disappeared in the pandemic. Even Silicon Valley companies with acres of campus space and seemingly endless benefits have reduced what they offer. And while there have been lots of short-term enticements to get employees to return to the office, there aren't a lot of lasting ones. But there are some perks that have evolved into ones more suited to remote work. Companies, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, set up stipends to outfit home offices. Even with people getting together again, both in and out of the workplace, the isolation of the pandemic isn't easily shaken off. The psychic damage of the pandemic remains, particularly when, instead of collective action against COVID, there was contention among so many. Companies would do well to set up an outreach system for employees of all levels to really check in on their individual needs and concerns. Forgo formal surveys for a more human touch of a one-on-one chat by phone or Slack. Because no matter how remote we might be from one another in our workplace at present, we've all lived through a very trying time and could benefit from some connection. In a joint effort, tech giants Apple, Google, and Microsoft announced that they have committed to building support for passwordless sign-in across all of the mobile, desktop, and browser platforms that they control in the coming year. Effectively, this means that passwordless authentication will come to all major device platforms in the not-too-distant future. Android and iOS mobile operating systems, Chrome, Edge, and Safari browsers, and the Windows and Mac OS desktop environments. The Senior Director of Platform Product Marketing at Apple said, 
Just as we design our products to be intuitive and capable, we also design them to be private and secure. Working with the industry to establish new, more secure sign-in methods that offer better protection and eliminate the vulnerabilities of passwords is central to their commitment to building products that offer maximum security and a transparent user interface, all with the goal of keeping users' personal information safe. A passwordless login process will let users choose their phone as the main authentication device for apps, websites, and other digital services, as Google detailed in a recent post. Unlocking the phone with whatever is set as the default action, entering a PIN, drawing a pattern, or using a fingerprint unlock would then be enough to sign into web services without the need to ever enter a password. Made possible through the use of a unique cryptographic token called a passkey that is shared between the phone and the website. By making logins contingent on a physical device, the idea is that users will simultaneously benefit from simplicity and security. Without a password, there will be no obligation to remember login details across services or compromise security by reusing the same password in multiple places. Equally, a passwordless system will make it much more difficult for hackers to compromise login details remotely since signing in requires access to a physical device and, theoretically, phishing attacks where users are directed to a fake website for password capture will be much more difficult to mount. Microsoft Vice President for Security, Compliance and Identity and Privacy emphasize the degree of compatibility across platforms. With passkeys on your mobile device, you'll be able to sign into an app or service on nearly any device, regardless of the platform or browser the device is running. For example, users can sign in on a Google Chrome browser that's running on Microsoft Windows using a passkey on an Apple device. The cross-platform functionality is being made possible by a standard called FIDO, F-I-D-O, which uses the principles of public key cryptography to enable passwordless authentication and multi-factor authentication in a range of contexts. A user's phone can store a unique FIDO-compliant passkey and will share it with a website for authentication only when the phone is unlocked. Per Google's post, passkeys can also be easily synced to a new device from cloud backup in the event that a phone is lost. Though many popular applications already included support for FIDO authentication, initial sign-on has required the use of a password before FIDO can be configured meaning that users were still vulnerable to phishing attacks that see passwords intercepted or stolen along the way. The Product Management Director for Secure Authentication at Google and President of the FIDO Alliance said in an email statement, the new procedures will do away with the initial requirement for a password. This extended FIDO support being announced will make it possible for websites to implement, for the first time, an end-to-end passwordless experience with phishing-resistant security. This includes both the first sign-in to a website and repeat logins. When passkey support becomes available across the industry, 
in 2022 and 2023, we'll finally have the internet platform for a truly passwordless future. So far, Apple, Google, and Microsoft have all said they expect the new sign-in capabilities to become available across platforms in the next year, although a more specific roadmap has not been announced. Although the plot to kill the password has been underway for years, there are signs that this time it may have finally succeeded. I gotta tell you, I'm using it now, and the only inconvenience I have is I have to make sure that I have the cell phone with me. But other than that, I like it. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. Zoom Interviews and Personal Revelations. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's time for us to start working in the office. Yeah, that's right. Well, okay, some of us are going back to the office. Some of us are not. And this is all starting to change some of the things that we've been dealing with over the course of the last two years. There's new experiences that are being experienced, for lack of a better description, that we're going through right now. I have this item in here, and uh, someone wrote in, and it's, it goes, My son, who is an IT manager, started to go back to the office. He hired some of his staff via Zoom without the benefit of a real-world interview. Uh, and I'm, okay, I'll get to that in a moment. He was quite surprised by how physically tall some of the new hires were when he finally met them in the office. You know, this is kind of funny uh, because it, we've... We've gone through a lot of different things in you know over the course of two years, and I'm going to start off by talking about the without the benefit of a real world interview. Now I know what was meant here, the face to face interview, but I think of a real world interview as something where you're engaging with whoever it is across the table, or in some cases across the wire, across the internet. My interview for my current job was done with someone who was in another country. And it was done on, yes, WebEx, Zoom, whatever it was, and perfectly fine. And I engaged with him via cameras. Yes, there was a whole thing of making sure my office looked somewhat decent. And, you know, it was a lot of things like that. And that's okay. And I actually just met that interviewer that and he's he's one of my bosses uh i just met him i'm gonna say two weeks ago three weeks ago and it was very interesting because i had kind of the the opposite thing i i I was a bit taller than him and there was another thing that was very interesting too i've been dealing with him for uh for now about three years uh and my interactions with him, he's always been on the phone. He comes through quite uh, quite vocal and quite strong of voice in person. I went through some analysis. He knows how to use the microphone on the phone. He, he comes through a lot closer on the phone. In person, he was a bit quieter. And I could hear his voice. I could tell what he was saying and all of that. He just had a different 
volume level altogether. It was very interesting. And that's one of the things I do. You hear me over this this microphone here, and I come through quite quite loud and forceful and all of that. But that's me. I know how to use the microphone. In person, yeah, I'm... Uh, while I'm a nerd, I'm I do have some of those tendencies of being quiet. So uh, yes, we are going through a number of different things where we're realizing some of the uh, some of the different nuances of people. Yeah, these people are physically taller or shorter than we expected, and that's fine. It's interesting because this kind of plays into some of the things that we experience in statistical analysis from prior to. All of COVID. Yes. One of the statistics that was very interesting to me was that taller people have more successful jobs. They they tend to, no pun intended, rise above the others, both literally and metaphorically, in that they do become managerial staff more readily. They, they're overseeing more things. Again... <laughs> So, and part of this is just the the image that we have in our minds. But when we're hiring somebody to work for us, we also, we subconsciously want to be in control. We want to stay in control. So it's very hard for somebody who is very tall to get a lower level job. That's because you come on in and you even if you are... You, you know, you're mild-mannered and you're kind, you're a gentle giant, all of that. You come on in and people look up at you and they actually have a certain level, minor level subconsciously, of fear. And you don't want to fear your employees. That's always, <laughs> that's always a recipe for disaster. So there's a lot to this. Zoom and the interview through COVID, whatever it is, WebEx, has leveled that playing field. It has changed a lot of how we think about people, how we interact with people. And this is something that is going to probably throw ripples across statistics for a while. It's probably going to kind of change how we think of people, which could be good as well. I'm really excited to the fact that so many of the people that I deal with in regular life, through you know, at the office, they uh, they've got no idea who I am other than a friendly voice on the other end of the line, a friendly person who's out to help them. Yes, I've met some coworkers along the way that I had not met in person, and yes, there were some of them. Uh, I looked up at them or looked down at them, not on them. Not anything more than just that physical status. And it's just it's just going to be like that. And I enjoy that. Because we get to know more about the person. We get to know about their personality. We get to know more about their technical nature. And we start removing the visuals that can hinder someone. I wonder. I don't know for sure. But I wonder if this is actually done some good for breaking down some of the racial barriers that have existed for years. Who knows? This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. 
Risk five, the company. That's R-I-S-C, like in reduce instruction set computer. Risk five is a computer architecture based on reduced instruction set computer principles. Unlike most other computer architecture designs, it is provided under an open source license that does not require fees to use. RISC-V is an open instruction set architecture based on established reduced instruction set computing principles in contrast to most computer architectures. The RISC-V can be freely used for any purpose permitting anyone to design, manufacture, and sell RISC-V chips and software. The RISC-V's governing body says the nonprofit needs buy-in from a variety of organizations, even those steeped in dominant proprietary architectures such as x86 giant Intel. Buy-in, which comes in the form of paid memberships, is needed to support ongoing development of the royalty-free CPU instruction set architecture to better compete with x86 and ARM risk. They need to have a level of funding in order to operate. RISC-V International, which gives paying members an extra level of, say, in the RISC-V future development. As a more even playing field for tech companies than what has been allowed with proprietary CPU architecture, namely x86 and ARM RISC. What everybody gets is the vested collective interest of everyone involved investing together, and each member's level of risk is much lower. When Intel joined RISC-V International in February of this year, it became a premium member, the top membership tier that gave the semiconductor giant a seat on the nonprofit board and the technical steering committee, which determines new features and specifications. For those privileges, Intel and the other 19 premium members each chip in an annual fee of $250,000. Besides Intel, other major companies with premier memberships include Alibaba Cloud, Google, Huawei, Unisoc, Western Digital, and ZTE. The premier members also range from startups like Star5, Ventana, and Microsystems to Sci5. There are many more RISC-V international members at the strategic level, which still gives them the ability to weigh in on the future development, but not at the same level as premier members. These members, which include Canonical, NVIDIA, and Samsung, pay as much as $35,000 for an annual membership. Smaller organizations pay half or less. But it's not just companies that are members. RISC-V's more than 2,400 members also include universities and government-related entities. India's government announced it had become a premier member and revealed a RISC-V roadmap for homegrown processors. Another significant government-related entity with premium membership is the Chinese Academy of Sciences, which participates through its Institute of Software and Institute of Computing Technology. The Academy is on the U.S. entity list of trade-restricted organizations, which underlines a unique position RISC-V is with its open-source nature amid international tensions. As with other countries, such as Russia, 
Risk Five International is not required to block anybody from engaging and participating, though the organization will make changes if needed. For member companies that have historically been associated with proprietary computer architecture, such as x86 or ARM, the members are looking at Risk Five to diversify their risk. It also gives these companies another computer architecture to support their increasing heterogeneous computing needs. In the case of Intel, the x86 giant involvement with Risk Five is helping support the company's revitalized contract manufacturing business, which has vowed to make custom chips for others using x86, ARM, or RISC-V as part of a larger comeback plan. While Intel's move to support RISC-V could be seen as a conflict with the semiconductor giant's traditional x86 business, Intel doesn't think RISC-V poses an existential threat. RISC-V members see an opportunity to win business in new and emerging workloads, and over time, devices and IT infrastructures will increasingly shift to the open-source computer architecture. Well, with RISC-V's new reduced instruction set, it begs the question, how does this differ from ARM, RISC, what are the major differences? The ARM RISC is UK-based and has been dominant CPU architecture for microcontrollers, microprocessors, and mobile systems, but a new contender is on the rise. What are the major differences between RISC-V and ARM, and will one win over the other? When talking about processors, the most important factor to consider is the instruction set architecture. This is because programs developed by software engineers will only be able to operate on specific hardware unless the code is written using an interpreted language that is cross-platform, such as Python or Java. There are many computer architectures available to designers, but most of these are restricted to custom architectures for microcontrollers. With regards to large processing systems such as desktop PCs and smartphones, only two are widely available, x86 slash x64 and ARM. The Intel-developed x86 x64 architecture has been the industry workhorse since the 1970s, while the ARM architecture was developed in the late 1980s for use on smaller systems. The major difference between the two architectures is that x86 x64 is a complex instruction set otherwise with an acronym CISC, and with many advanced features, while ARM is a reduced instruction set with the acronym RISC that only has a handful of instructions by comparison. Or complex machines allows for a computer to do more in a single instruction cycle, while RISC allows for simpler programming. Generally speaking, RISC machines requires more clock cycles to complete the same instruction in CISC, but can do more efficiently from an energy point of view, which makes them ideal for mobile applications. While x86, x64 remains the dominant architecture in the heavy processing market, ARM may face serious competition now from a new processor architecture, RISC-V. RISC-V is an open standard instruction set architecture 
that uses the reduce instruction set computer principles of BASIC, few instructions, and compared to CISC. It was first introduced in 2010 and currently supports 32-bit, 64-bit, and 128-bit CPUs. The CPU architecture uses a load-store topology, meaning that the processor is unable to directly operate on data in memory and instead requires the user to move the data from memory to its internal registers before it can operate on them. While this makes RISC-V slower than CISC, it allows RISC-V to be simpler in hardware design and therefore uses less silicon space. Well, with RISC-Vs, it begs the question, how does this differ from ARM, RISC? While both processor technologies are somewhat similar in function, that is to say the RISC-V versus the UK ARM, the major difference between RISC-V and ARM is that RISC-V is open source, whereas ARM is proprietary. This means that any designer wishing to integrate an ARM CPUs into their design that is to say, a system on a chip, is required to pay royalties to ARM holdings. RISC-V, however, is open source and therefore does not require any royalties or licenses. While this allows designers to experiment and develop RISC-V systems for free, there is little to no support for hardware design, whereas ARM, however, has teams of engineers developing hardware systems that make it easy for designers to incorporate ARM CPUs. The second major difference between the two architectures is support. As RISC-V is an extremely new processor platform, there is very little support at the present time for software and programming environments. ARM, however, has an extremely large online community support structure and libraries to help designers target many different platforms including microcontrollers, microprocessors, and even servers. The third major difference between RISC-V and ARM is that ARM, being proprietary, can be export blocked by governments, such as when the U.S. attempted to block the sale of ARM intellectual property to China. RISC-V, however, is open source and available for anyone with an internet connection to look up the standard and implement their own design. This is one of the reasons why some Chinese developers are turning to RISC-V for their future designs. Well, looking at RISC-V and UK's ARM in the future, will one take over the other? Or can they coexist? If ARM UK is to survive the competition posed by RISC-V, it will have to rely on its overwhelmingly large market share to present itself as a better choice for designers. While this tactic works for Intel, it may not for ARM, as Intel not only developed the architecture, it also developed physical CPUs. ARM, however, develops no hardware and as such may put designers off from using it. The use of RISC-V is increasing and a recent job opening in Amazon is looking for candidates with RISC-V experience. This move shows that major companies are already looking at alternatives to UK's ARM and the attempted purchase of ARM by NVIDIA does not help this. As technology continues to improve and support for RISC-V increases, designers will be left with the option between a paid-for processor architecture or free architecture with no limitations.
Just because something is free does not mean it will take the lead. The Linux operating system is a classic example. While most distributions are free, Linux makes up a tiny percentage of operating systems around the world. Why? There are so many different versions of Linux distros. RISC V as an open source, it is the only one that is an open source computer architecture. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston with the 512 Audio Limelight Microphone. Marty, you know, I want to go back to last week. You and I were talking about the 512 Audio Limelight Mic. Actually, we were talking about microphones in general. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and you and I both have had a chance to to actually play around with this mic. And I'd like to actually just explore this for, for just a, a few minutes this week. Because absolutely, I uh, I found this microphone to be quite amazing. Yes. All things considered, you know, you start putting it all together. This is this is a nice microphone. Well, we we we've, we've said just last week, if our memory serves, that microphones have their own personality, and you can yeah 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 you can use them to enhance yours. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what we find with the five twelve. I mean, there are a couple of things about it that are technological. Uh, I'll explain this as rapidly as I can. A mm -hmm. condenser mic, the most sensitive in the world, what you would normally use for instruments or vocalists. Mm -hmm. A condenser mic is a capacitor. So very minor movements of air get picked up and uh, interpreted into signal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With, with a dynamic mic, it works more like a... a, a, a I guess an alternator or, or really it, it, it's magnetic. It, it's old style yeah, and you're yeah. moving its diaphragm to move a magnet against a coil. And that creates the signal, which means that there is a little bit of forgiveness room at the bottom. Those small sounds from the background, mm -hmm, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the sound of the dog chewing on your leg or, or the sound of the <laughs> air conditioner failing or the sound of the guy running sure, into yeah. the garage, right? Yeah. Those things just aren't there. So, I've wanted to try a dynamic microphone for a while, and I don't know. It, it's just that there never was one that said to me, yeah, I'm going to get this one. I'm going to try it. I don't care if I have to pay for it. I'll get it for review one way or another. <laughs> yeah. And I ran into a mutual old friend of ours. Mm -hmm. We knew her as Hillary Money at Blue Microphone. Yeah, yeah. And it's now Hillary Lyle with 512 Audio and Warm Audio, Warm Microphones. Mm -hmm. uh, I ran into her at CES, and uh, I said, hey, this dynamic mic of yours, if if you if if you don't get me one to review, I'm going to stalk you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by uh, the way, Hillary was your first ever radio interview, right? She she was the first um she was the first one from CES. Yes. Yeah. So. Uh, and that year, I did. I don't think I did any other interviews there. I just reported on it and wandered around the show. But I had scheduled to to talk with her, and I, uh, you know, met up with her, and she was she did a wonderful job. She, she's smart. Yes. And how dare dare her? She's pretty. <laughs> yes. Yes. And and the more she still have curly thing. hair. She oh, still. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, not not every day. <laughs> not every day. <laughs> okay. But she, she she I mean I I've often admired her sense as a PR person. She's one of the best I ever met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And her microphones. This 
mic, this dynamic mic, the limelight from 512 Audio. Yeah. Really is striking in its reproductive qualities. I'm about two inches from it right now with mm -hmm. what's called a spit guard or the, the, yeah. it's got other yeah. names between me and the mic. So I can say population and you only hear mm -hmm. a little bit of the P. Yeah, you know, it, yeah, it, yeah. It's that kind of thing. Guys, if you're on Teams, if you're on Skype, if you're on WebEx, whatever, mm -hmm. and you're doing work from there, or if you've got a podcast, mm -hmm. or if you're doing anything audio, the quality of the mic is as important as the quality of your voice. Definitely. Uh, and, and, you know, I find people will go on out there, they'll try to pick up a $20 microphone or even a $50 microphone and expect it to do the work, uh, you know, it, it's like, you know, people who go on out and they buy a Hyundai car and they want it to perform like a Bugatti Veyron. It's, you're just not going to get that. And well, the price difference between these microphones isn't that much. No, it's, it's, it's less than a really good dinner. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, 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 it's uh, not crazy. Yeah. So I, I got one, and and you said you wanted one, so I, I made the arrangement for you to get yes. one as well. What's your impression? What okay. do you think? So I did try it out, um, and I uh, okay. So so the microphone that I have here that I'm talking to everybody on is, uh, it's 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 a industry broadcast standard. I took maybe 15 minutes of adjustment which you have to with any microphone because they've got a little bit of a different character a little bit of a different way of how they sound just they're all a little quirky uh, yes but it took me about 15 minutes and the difference between the two wasn't all that much it was there were some some nuances but for most people they would find that as nuances they wouldn't find it you know if uh, I could match it up really close uh, like really, really no, close. I'm, I'm telling you, this gets yeah. a news tips squeal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> and we can record that squeal because we've got a great microphone for that. So I, oh man. So I was really, uh, really surprised. No, not surprised. Yes, I'm surprised. The price point of this is, I mean, this is $200 and I'm, I'm, I get it to sound like a $500 microphone. With 15 minutes of effort, which and you'd I, have to... As, as, as you know, I'm a cheapskate, and I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what did you find out about the audio? What, what were your thoughts on it? Uh, well, when I went through and did a series of tests, mm -hmm. and the first thing I wanted to test for was off-axis. If you're not looking straight at it, how much does that change the tonality? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the change is smooth all the way to 90 degrees where it's mm -hmm. doing, uh, it's cardioid. So yeah, it, it's yeah. a directional mic. And at 90 degrees, you're still getting something. I also tried it at distances from 2 inches to 12 inches. Mm -hmm. And the sensitivity, of course, at 12 inches is not quite what it is at 2 inches. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still decent. You're still picking stuff up. It's... A very responsive, very capable mic. Its personality is a great match for everything I've wanted for it. So uh, I don't know if, if if you if you need a recommendation, I don't think you do at this point. The the <laughs> limelight from Five Twelve Audio. Definitely. Thank you, Ben, and thank you, Marty. The forty sixth annual Trenton Computer Festival was held Saturday, March the nineteenth. There were over 50 talks on 10 concurrent tracks. All the sessions were recorded.
They are available and free for download at tcf-nj.org and the main page hyperlinks will direct you to the portal site. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State Region Since most computer clubs are online, you are welcome to attend any of the online meetings. Just log on to the club website for more information for more remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club will have a presentation on lightning talks consisting of speech recognition, Raspberry Pi 400, private online shareable document, and how to download YouTube videos. Thursday, May the 12th, meeting time at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group has a meeting Friday, May the 13th at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is limac.org. Brookdale Computer Users Group will have a presentation on Complete Robocore Defense. Thursday, May the 26th, meeting time at 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is bcug.com. The Westchester PC Users Group has a meeting Thursday, June the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, June 3rd. Meeting time is at 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, June the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant. Address is 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The phone number to call to register is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email message addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch And remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.